Hi there and welcome back to The State of It. I'm here with Dad. He's not going to say anything again. Hi, Dad. Hi, Winston. I'm here with <laughs> Winston, my son. My it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, we're back for part two of the China episode, where we're going to be looking and focusing more on China's military. So, Dad, first question. It can be argued that China is expanding through moving into Hong Kong, through the island chains, and through the Belt and Road Initiative. What do you think China's intentions are moving forward? Well, strategically, it's had a very clear plan. The Belt and Road Initiative um, was really a mechanism to resource China via land routes and at the same time increase its influence. But the key thing is resourcing because really China doesn't control the sea access um, that it needs to sustain this growing powerhouse. So the Belt and Road is, think of it as the initial hedging process, whereby as China grew, it couldn't be as easily constricted by the American Navy and American policy and blockaded. So think of it as a blockade insurance policy. But since then, um, there's been, or since that initiative, there's been a huge evolution, which I've been warning against, and that is the rise of the Chinese Navy and armed forces, but particularly the Navy. All of the great empires in the world, maritime empires, did so because they had the greatest shipbuilding capability in the world. Britain with Portsmouth, America following the Civil War could develop and build warships, you know, in its industrial base. And in China's case, it has the greatest shipbuilding capability in the world and has done for some time. Its problem has been building warships of comparable capabilities to the Amer to America. In some areas, its ships are comparable. In other areas, for example, submarines, they're not so. But the gap is narrowing and the gap can be compensated for by numbers. Geostrategically, the Chinese have had a big issue, and that is how do I get out through the island chains or how do I get my resources to flow in? Because those island chains create choke points and choke points, maritime choke points, make for very easy constriction, as the Japanese found with American submarines in World War II. So their whole strategy has been how do I get to the point of controlling those points and pushing the American Navy from coming close to my seaboard and then creating havoc? And the island chain strategy is just that it started with the recovery of coral atolls below the high water mark or the low water mark, which, according to the UNCAS laws, gave them a window. Subsequently, it's been ruled that it was illegal, but the Chinese couldn't care about that. They've just carried on and they built a series of island chains, which have become militarized bases. That sort of is like the outer tripwire of the first island chain. And their next strategy has been rather innovatively. Ballistic missiles were in the Cold War used for one purpose, and that was basically nuclear strikes. Long-range ballistic missiles with nuclear weapons meant if you saw one flying through the air, 99.9% .9 chance had a nuclear warhead. The Chinese decided to evolve that delivery system to a conventional warhead that could be targeted against US carriers. And with it, their range started to increase from sort of 600 miles to 1,200 miles. You can see systems which are increasing to many thousands of miles. And that means that US carrier forces are now put at risk when they come into the region. And when you consider a US carrier strike force has a combat radius of about 640 nautical miles, by the time you push them out a thousand miles, they're having a real problem doing their business. So we've seen a strategy of island chain pushback. 
We've seen the growth of size and capability of the Chinese Navy. And we've seen an area denial strategy using ballistic missiles, which actually I think is very, very similar to what took place with Germany in two wars. When Germany realized it was losing the dreadnought competition in 1911 onwards, it started to build U-boats. And U-boats ultimately in 1917 almost finished Britain off because we didn't have enough. We had six weeks supplies. The same thing happened in the run-up to World War II. They had a Z plan to build a comparable battle fleet on the surface. They abandoned it and they switched to U-boats and U-boats in two occasions in the first and happy time. In the second one, were almost constricted the, tra- the trade and flow of commerce to Britain. What the Chinese have done is they realize they can't match the Americans in their seagoing fleets, in their aircraft carriers, now that the F-35B has arrived, because you can convert smaller carriers into ships that can carry an F-35 vertical launched um, F combat plane. And they have put more and more emphasis on ballistic missiles that can be used to target warships. Initially, the big carriers, but later as the guidance systems improve. And there's a concept where you can see it coming down the line where a destroyer leaves Portsmouth and it's hit by a ballistic missile system fired 8,000 miles away. So they could deny the sea to their opposition. So are China's intentions to defend their own waters against American hegemony or their intentions expansion? Well, all expansion has two phases. One is defend your seaboard and your local waters, because if you can't defend those, you're open to attack. And once you've made that barrier secure, you push outwards. And a very clear example was what took place in March 1936. And there was a piece of land between France and Germany called the Rhinelands. And the Rhinelands were designed to be a buffer, which meant that France could get access Germany quickly if it transgressed any agreements. It could support its allies to the east and to the south, Italy, Poland, Czechoslovakia. And Germany, via Hitler, took the gamble of reoccupying the Rhinelands with only a few 12,000 men. France then took the decision that it wasn't going to go and trigger an act of war because it was having a gold crisis. And what happened next? The Germans fortified the Seafried Line, which meant the French couldn't get into Germany, which meant the alliance broke down. And the first island chain is just like the Seafried Line. And it's not a coincidence that China's moved on Hong Kong because it sits within the defensive structure. So it means it, only with great cost and the threshold has been raised for American action versus returns. So their strategy is very clear. They're securing their near-term first, second and third island chains. And once they've done that, trust me, they'll be pushing out into the world trade routes because no enlarged economic structure fails to take that money, invest in armed forces and run down its resource chains and securitize them with military power. There's no exception in history to that. So, just in a word, what is the the Chinese equivalent to the Rhineland? The first island chain. Do you believe that China, like Germany, is gearing its economy for war? I think that last year was a watershed. And and post-1936, in March, when the Rhinelands were invaded, if you look at Britain, Britain realised that war was inevitable as a result. And Britain suddenly started spending more on defence, and so did the other Western countries. War became inevitable for that moment onwards. It was just when. If they had only realised that the inevitability for Germany was that it had gone onto a total war footing where it was bankrupt by 1940 or it went to war, they would have been even more concerned. But they knew there was conflict coming. And I think that's really what the parallels of, nine, of 2020 have been, both through the first island chain 
um, through the Hong Kong annexation, through the aggression in the Himalayas, and through the spread of the of the virus, which I suspect very strongly is part of that process of slowing down the West and closing the economic gap and the military gap between China and the West, ready for even more aggressive stances. Do you believe China poses a real threat to America and her allies? And if so, what specifically do they threaten? So, um, absolutely. I think we are on course for a hegemonic um, clash, inevitably. Um, and that clash will take us to the brink of World War Three. We're on that path. And history says the only way you stop a clash like that is that the the, had, the power that is failing builds enough defensive military capability to deter aggression. And um, I, you know, the Americans have significant capability and they are focusing on space because many of these ballistic missile systems that would control the oceans have to fly through space. And if you control the high ground, you control the battlefield. So they're, they're not absent of this competition and they're placing emphasis in certain domains. But the true challenge comes, as we found every time, is the challenger is more swiftly adopts new adaptive technology that the hegemonic system has not seen in time. And and so we've got this huge, at this moment where revolutions in military affairs, new technologies are everywhere. It's a very dangerous time. And drones are a good example. Hypersonic weapons are a good example. The shift and balance of power is very quick. And and one of the key things to surviving this challenge is the rate at which America and the West can enact and create new technologies inside the innovation cycle. Because if they do it too slowly, they won't have them in time. So the speed of our process, military production, design and manufacturing and implementation process is critical at a time when there were so many revolutions in military affairs. And the only time that has the most parallel was actually the run up to World War One, when naval innovations were so unbelievably coming at two a penny from dreadnoughts to submarines, to the use of aeroplanes at sea, to the use of the torpedo. It was an incredible mix of change taking place. And the Germans took advantage of that change. Now, this mix is much bigger than that mix. It's a hundred times more potent. So it's about adaptability. And it's very important that Britain, now that we are in this independent state and return to maritime power, understands that we should be spending a hundred billion pounds a year, at least if we're to be part of the deterrence that holds back the free option that China might seek. And the drumbeat for this process is the commodity cycle. And there's a 54-year Kondratiev cycle. And at the peak of the commodity cycle or towards the peak, when the competition for resources accelerates, that's when conflict is most likely to break out. And you're talking about conflict between two consumer societies. The Americans and the Chinese, the West and the Chinese, are consumer societies. So that means that you know the price goes up, they become more, um, more aggressive and competition increases and conflict is more likely. Talking about shifts in power again. We, we seem to always be talking about shifts in power. I feel like a shift in power is inevitable. If you look at history, Mesopotamia to Spain to the Mongols, all of these empires, these great empires, they all rise and they all fall, no matter what you do. Even if you can delay it, everyone in the end ends up falling. How long, really can the Americans prevent a shift in power until they too will fall? Well, you, you make a very good point. And I think you know, 
Well, so, the, well, well, thank you. <laughs> I'm proud of you, son. What can I say? <laughs> uh, uh, look, the decline is inevitable. What I have been preoccupied by for 20 years is I think mankind is at a crucible of change. And in one of my theories, I talk about why we create social structures, because they create order, they can help us control the environment and push back the ravages of entropy, of order going to disorder, that effectively kills off our DNA. So we use social structures and technology and coherence to control our environment to give our DNA longevity. And that's worked really well with the Darwinian competition of when a, a young system rises, it has more coherence, more anti-entropy, and then it's wiped away the old one, which is really like a tree which isn't growing. And conflict has been a part of that shift. And on the whole, those advances have moved us to where we are right now. The difference is, is that those weapons were focused on the other social system, the other empire. The weapons we have now can destroy the whole of mankind. And so this Darwinistic process of natural selection of social empires, of ordered empires, I think has reached its limit because we almost destroyed each other in the Cold War a few times. And this time, there will be nothing left if we go to war. Of that, I'm certain. So we face this crucible of change of how do you cope with, as you quite rightly say, the rise of one and the decline of the other without conflict that brings weapons to bear that destroys the whole of humanity. And so I think this is the cruise, this is the decade where, where humanity has to change. And I've studied social patterns and behaviors. And if there's some hope in this is that Britain's revolution between regionalization, expansion to empire, the first and second stage of my five stage model took place within the construct of a democracy without conflict for the first time in human history. Normally we would have had conflict. So there are new ways to do this. And I think that what we have to do is deter China from the free option to enact the unconscious process of aggression within the next five years, because somewhere between 24 and 29 is the peak of the commodity cycle, even the back end of it, where there's friction. Once we're in the other period, then we have another 20 years to work out how better to integrate hierarchical and democracy and how those two structures can coexist because by then we're going to be getting off the planet. Think of this as the time, the race really to become a stellar human society and to live together on this planet with an environment that we don't destroy. And so this is this is the crucible of change. Talking about America and China, I think the only real comparable challenge uh, that we have seen in history to the level of two great superpowers with weapons of mass destruction has been the Soviet Union in America. And that, though there were certain points that were very, very hot, was a Cold War. I feel as if economic attrition in this coming challenge could be the one that decides it because the weapons of mass destruction are mad will likely prevent a war from breaking out. What would you say? Well, well, I'm not sure about that. Okay, so let's look at how we survived the Cold War. The Cold War was really... And we don't think about this, but America was the last of the Western Christian empires and Russia was the split away from the Western Christian empires that became communist. So we're looking at the old Christian empire splitting in half. On one side, you've got... Can you just clarify what the Christian empire is? That would be the, the sequence of events from the Portuguese to the Spanish, to the Dutch, to the French, to the British, to Germany trying twice, to America. The sequence of social structures which... In expounded on the whole democracy until the end that were really governed by the Christian value set. And that's one superstructure. 
and and really the 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 first war the first and second world were civil wars within that structure of which the structure split and the communists became atheists because it was a definition of we are not defined by a religious construct and so it was a sort of anti definition which gave clarity and why you would come back and conflict with each other so that's one thing they're old, they're an old system that split they're also a system that had the memory of the Second World War foremost in their leaders' minds. They knew what destruction looked like. They knew what bloodshed looked like. They understood war because they'd lived through it. Sorry, is this Russia? This is both Russia and America. In the height of the Cold War, you still had the memory of the, of the Second World War within both leaderships. So they knew what they were going to do. As we found in India in the turn of you know 2000 plus, when Rumsfeld had to persuade the Prime Minister of India not to go to war, nuclear war with Pakistan because he wouldn't recover from 20 impacts to his big, bigger cities, the younger nations with that power don't remember it. And the problem with China is twofold. One is they don't have a recent memory of it. And the other is they have a giant population with 55% males over the 51% normal average. That's 55 million men more than a normal society would have before it was aggressive. And I think that makes them, as a collective, more aggressive and more prepared to take risk than other systems would do in the past. So that combination of desperation for resources in a world constricted by how much resources available versus too great you know, economic systems competing for those resources and the ideological parallels between hierarchy and democracy are a very, very dangerous, potent pot that we've got to learn to resist. And the only way to resist it is not by accommodation, is not by trying to understand this aggressive expansion. It's by meeting it with, with as we learned in the Cold War, by a proper process of mutually assured destruction through the investment in deterrence. What do you think British foreign policy should be towards China? Well, Britain, in its incarnation post-Brexit, has affirmed its commitment to democracy and a meritocracy. More than Europe, that's become a bureaucracy and seeks to subsume democracy in its internal structures, and more than America, that is a failing democracy split between the polarities of two parties. So Britain represents a personification of everything China fears, the freedom of the individual, the values of democracy. So that's the first thing ideologically. The second thing is Britain as a global maritime nation expanding into the world is going to find itself constantly confronted by China. So I think that we we are going to end up taking the lead along with America in terms of not accepting the Chinese strategy of concentration camps for the Ouija's, breaking agreements, suborning the Chinese, the, the Hong Kong people away from democracy and their roots to a form of you know, hierarchical control. I think Britain is going to literally take the forefront in the charge with America. Hypothetically, imagine there was another Hong Kong or another island chain that China has not yet taken and, was seeking, and they were seeking to move into that area. What do you think, or sorry, how do you think Britain should react to that? Well, well, there's a very clear example, and that's Taiwan. Taiwan has to be next on the target list, along with also South Korea, which isn't talked about, for two reasons. But South Korea seems like a much tougher nut to crack than Taiwan with their military well, well, strong American backing. Well, well, and Taiwan has quite a strong American backing. So. Well, 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 South Korea could be you know, easily done you know, just by getting your um, proxy state of North Korea to be aggressive. 
Um, and yes, it will be harder, but with distractions, it might not be. But Taiwan represents the is to the CCP. Taiwan is a Chinese state. It was where the nationalists went at the end of the civil war. They hid there, and the the reembracing of Taiwan back into the Chinese CCP fold is a critical objective for them. Which is why they have you know one China, two policies, all the rubbish that says you know you're all part of it, and yet China has its own democracy and doesn't want it. Taiwan's existence depends on the American military. The moment the American military can't go to its aids, the Chinese can invade. And I think there's a real risk of distraction or political calculation that the Biden regime doesn't have the attention to defend Taiwan that makes Taiwan the target on the Randall list for the moment America's looking in the wrong direction. And you know, again, that's another significant annexation, like Czechoslovakia was in the in the American German march to war. So our foreign policy is beginning, and this is an interesting one: is our future lies in the alliance structure that contains China, the Quad, which is Australia, India, Japan, and America. And we've already already. What about South Korea? They, they don't figure in that number for some reason, but they're part of that alliance. But nonetheless, for a number of reasons, one is. That area is the greatest economic growth basin that we Britain should be trading with, and secondly, by offering to be part of the alliance, and we would benefit from better trade relationships. So I can see the two coming together. A war with China, no one can step back from if it happens. So there's no excuse to say we want to be neutral. I don't think that's possible. And our carrier dispositions, when the Queen Elizabeth goes in, you know, it's going to go as a carrier force. And it's going to make the statement that Britain is part of the freedom of the oceans against the Chinese control mechanisms. So we're already being drawn into it. Um, I, the only interesting question is whether, if you go and look at America's role in the Second World War, it stood back, it armed Britain, and powered its economy in the process, and. As a result of that, it became powerful when its homeland was never threatened, and it used that moment of neutrality in both wars to become stronger. The interesting thing is whether Britain actually uses that duality. But the problem is that a war wouldn't be a protracted affair. It'll be short, sharp, and bloody ugly, so you're either on the front line or not. But I wonder whether there's some room for that strategy, and I haven't quite defined it yet, but it's an area of ambiguity that I think might keep Britain out of the quad, but on a second-tier level of optional support under certain circumstances. You talked a little bit about Taiwan there. What are your predictions for Taiwan? Look, the other part of Taiwan is, you know, there is a chip war going on and who can make smallest chips and it's not China. And Taiwan and South Korea have chip making organizations that would be greatly coveted by the Chinese. So they become, I think, nations that have assets that are valuable to the Chinese economy. That's only added the the, the, the impetus to somehow or another take control of China, of Taiwan. Um but going back to your other question also, what our foreign policy? Our foreign policy should be the engagement with democracies around the world and economies in the emerging market where their growth is sufficient and, and high and we can be a part of that, where we can resource ourselves and counter the Chinese from resourcing themselves from that basin. So we gain resources, but we deny them resources. So I think we should be playing the great strategic game again of where we invest, um, democracies that we support, strategic locations like South Africa and the Cape that we actually seek to build alliance with, and in this case, push the CCP's influence out from the ANC. There's a big game afoot here. Are we not already playing that game? No, I think we're asleep.
with Taiwan, what are your predictions? My predictions are it sits in a constant state of threat. And the moment American um, focus wobbles is a threat for Taiwan. Um, it sits on a constant state of invasion. And if I was America, I would offer it you know, weapons that it could defend itself with and delay the success of a Chinese invasion. The difficulty America faces is odds on you give them the weapons and then they get captured by the Chinese and then their secrets get opened out. So they're in a court in a quite a ba delicate balance of what to give the Taiwanese and what not to give them. Well, I think that's about it from us. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, Dad. Love great, the chat. Great questions. Great questions. We're proud as, of you. As always, as always. If you guys have any questions or want to ask any questions that we can feature on here, please visit Dad's website at www.davidmurrin.co.uk, spelt M-U-R-R-I-N. Thanks for listening.